Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the CVO Life. As we all know, the source of unhappiness is having unrealistic expectations, which means that's why we are unhappy, but we aren't because I'm here with David. Hi, David. Hello, and welcome Hello. to the show. Hi. How you doing? You okay? <laughs> all right. Why so, stay here? <laughs> I mean, what do I say here? I could say, hi. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. What do you, I mean... <laughs> Exactly. So, uh, David, he's uh, the the one that builds made with intent. So he's uh, into customer intent platform. He's a uh, a good friend of mine. We he's in the CRO space. He's writing. Uh, he wrote already a, a, a fantastic book, and uh, we will have a good conversation. Hopefully, if uh, this uh, warm, I don't know how how warm it is there for you, man. But here is like completely it's like we are i feel like we are in egypt not not in romania oh i'm in the uk dude so it's always cold here always cold always cold in manchester oh. all right so uh david let's uh, let's kick things off by uh letting everyone know about what are your intentions what were your intentions when you've got into the optimization space and what uh, what kept you here what's my intent um, I don't know, how far back do you want to go? When I was a little boy, I uh, I don't know. I started um, a company called User Conversion back in 2015, and we're a CRO agency. And I don't know, like, I don't know how you started your company, but the way I started was I was a freelancer, and I just got some clients, and then I got too many clients, so I hired someone naively, not knowing if I could pay them. And then I got more clients and then I hired more people naively, not knowing if I could pay them. And it just grew and grew and grew into something. I was always fascinated in, um, originally by this, this like fuse between the creative and the analytical. Uh, I never felt as though my brain settled in either of them. I don't know how if that's most CRO people feel, but to be, to be really good at conversion optimization, I feel as though you need to be very very creative, but at the same time, quite analytical, you know, the qualm, the qualm. Do you ever find that? Do you think that's a thing? The left brain, the right brain merging? <laughs> for sure. For sure it is. Uh, David, I have a question regarding your uh, naivety. So uh -huh. you, you've just, uh, I don't know, you've just painted the, the, the path of any entrepreneur, right? There is a moment when you decide to hire someone and you don't know if you will be able to pay that someone, that person, however you do it. Uh, do you think that this lack of, uh, let's say, clarity uh, actually helped you down the line? 100%. Yeah, I, I always say, I don't know about you, but I, a lot of people have come to me for advice, probably naively themselves, thinking I could help. Um, <laughs> Asking, like, what's it like to run your own business? How did you get started? And I always often give the same advice, just painted in a different way, which is all about risk. I find that as you get older, your dependency for risk decreases because you have more responsibilities, more dependence. Uh, you have mortgage, children, whatever it might be. Uh, but when you're younger, you, you don't have any of that. You, you have a little bit of freedom. And naive, naivety can be your friend at times because you can go down the paths that others may not have trodden before and your propensity to take risk is higher. So I started using conversion, I think I was 28. 
uh, maybe 27. You know, I didn't have a house. Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who's now my wife. Uh, no children. Uh, so I worked, I don't know, 6 a.m. to to 12 p.m., you know, stupid hours for because there was nothing else to do apart from watch Lost on TV. Um, so I, I think yeah. naivety helps personally. I, I think it, it's directly related to risk. Yeah, I think the the adversity to risk is uh, is lower because you don't have uh, too much to lose. Basically, you don't have. I guess so. And, and I think if we are if we are to look at uh, I don't know career optimization through the lenses of a CRO, you are authorized to do radical uh, experiments with your life when you don't have enough years. So basically, when your traffic is low, you could do radical redesign because you don't have too much uh, traffic. And I think it's the same with uh, your ears, right? Because you, you don't yeah. have uh, too many things to, to lose. There's, a, there's another, another approach as well. There's a guy called Duncan Wardle who is the ex-head of innovation at uh, Disney. You guessed it. Uh, that's, that's Mulan, by the way. Um, and he, he talks about like the seven uh, streams of creativity, as in what really fuels creativity. And one of those streams is what he calls the naive expert, which is bringing somebody into a room who is an expert in a completely different field to, your, uh, to yours and therefore is naive to your field. So as, a, as an example, he gave the example of when they were building the uh, a restaurant in Tokyo for the Tokyo Disney Disneyland over there. And what they did is that they got all these Disney architects and Imagineers in one room and they invited... Oh, have you gone? Is it just me? No, I'm here. Oh. You're just uh, on the spotlight. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just looking at myself. Okay, he, he invited a restaurateur into this conversation which is someone who'd never done a theme park restaurant before, never been involved in theme parks, never been involved in Disney, etc. And whilst he asked all the people around the table to draw what a restaurant should look like, a Disney Tokyo restaurant, and everyone just drew a building like this with a door and windows and what have you, uh, maybe a nice thatched roof. And this restaurateur designed a balbun that was uh, a restaurant and that was their naive expert, like a, a restaurateur trying to design something for Disney that had nothing to do with their field, i.e. an architect, uh, what an architect would do. Yeah. I think naivety is, is the, the best form of uh, reducing your risk and also, uh, I don't know, fueling creativity. Yeah. It's also, I, re I recall a, a story from uh, Feynman's uh, biography, if you, re if you know Richard P. Feynman, the... No. An amazing book, by the way. I mean, one of the funniest books that I've uh, ever read. Richard P. Feynman is one of the uh, most famous physicists uh, in, uh, in, in, in the last century. And right. he, he wrote a book about him going to the facilities where they were preparing to, to do that uh, uh, test on, uh, on the nuclear bomb. And he was in a room with the, all these... Uh, People, you know, they were thinking about the, the, the way to evacuate some gases which will come out from this facility. And he was looking at some things and, and he hasn't uh, been, he wasn't able to understand. An, uh, uh, it was like an icon, you know, like a circle with an X. And hmm. he was, uh, he just pointed his finger there and asked, what is this thing? 
And those guys started to look at themselves and they started to calculate and they realized that they, they got a flow in, in, into their design. So they thought that this guy uh, understood everything from a, from a snapshot, but he was just curious to, to, ask, to ask the question about what, what, what is this thing doing? So yeah, I think naivety is a, is a, great, uh, it's a great asset, to be honest. It is. So, oh, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. I, I mean, when you look at some of the best inventions in the world, they're all stolen creatively from other inventions, like the story of the sat-nav. That was, um, that was stolen accidentally from Sputnik, if you know that story, how the sat-nav was created. Or Dyson, the vacuum cleaner, how that was stolen. I think it was through um, like sawdust mills. Uh, it was taken directly from there, and that created the innovation of uh, the Dyson vacuum cleaner. There's loads of others. Uh, those two are the ones that come to mind, though. Yeah, um, I mean, or iPod. Uh, hey, even the iPod and everything. I mean, the, there are few divergent uh, uh, products, you know, creations. I mean, most of them are building on top of something, and they are actually replacing something. So basically, the iPod is the replacement of the radio, you know, of yeah. the Walkman, which was the replacement of the radio, which so and so. So basically, everything uh, that we are now using had some ancestors in the past some innovation AI, AI will replace it all so there you go brilliant that's all we're done <laughs> well yeah in the if you want to get into that you don't all right i don't mind actually i i don't know about you but the um whenever i do any talks uh specifically around my book uh or when it comes to personalization the one question that I get asked at the end of every single talk is exactly the same, which is what does the future look like or uh, how will AI and personalization work together? And I find it both a fascinating topic and also equally hard to discuss. Um, and we can talk about it by, by all means. I find it. Um, so wh yeah. why don't we get a bit into your, uh, into your, into your current passion, David, because you've, you've migrated from, from the, from the CRO landscape to the personalization, I think it's one year now when we've got that conversation. When we, when you were doing this uh, research around the, uh, how different experts uh, sees, uh, see personalization, and you, you've got, uh, you've naively thought that I'm an expert <laughs> as well. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> you've got a big old brain. Yeah. So how? What? What? What's with the personalization? Why personalization and where, where is this uh, leading us? Well, I found working in CRO for 15 years, who knows, um, and owning, owning and running an agency uh, was brilliant. I found, I don't know if you found this, but a lot of, we're mostly retailers, a lot of their problems seem to be standardized. They seem to be uh, almost like based on templates than anything else. The PDP is a problem. The PLP is a problem. And when people talk about CRO, it felt as though they're optimizing something that's quite generic. Um, obviously, a conversion rate. And we won't get into the definition here. I think that's that's too nebulous and, and it's been done to death. But something that's like aggregated and a rare event. And I felt that the term CRO has been... Um, bastardized for sure uh and it, it felt in some senses quite in, inauthentic and when i look at the antithesis of cro 
I look towards personalization. I look towards something that is personable, that uh, that isn't templatized. Is that a word? Templatized? It's not generic yeah. on different templates, yeah. but it is uh, either individual to the user or or talks about connection and relationship with the brand and the individual. You know, creates some kind of intimacy between the two. Uh, so I, I think I feel as though CRO is a wonderful practice, but. And I don't want to get into the term about it, but for me, personalization felt more authentic. It felt more uh, more about what selling should be, which is ethical and understanding the individual. And I've I've often spoke, you know, to others uh, about my my woes with Disney and how uh, the the brand, if I'm honest, have have buggered me over you know, by price gouging and by like, just seeing me as a number rather than yeah. as a person. And I see that as their attempt to do conversion optimization. They are optimizing some business metrics that are uh, all about price gouging me as an individual. And by doing so, have removed the personal nature and the intimacy between the brand and myself. So that is what led me down the path of um being fascinated in personalization and just for reference also everyone has a different definition of personalization every year has been the year of personalization and don't you feel as though that conflict provides entertainment i do i've had so many agreements and disagreements with individuals because personalization is just this whole big ball of conflict it's fascinating is it segmentation do you spell it with an s or a z it's an s by the way um, it's, it's really interesting because you're British. <laughs> is that your British accent? <laughs> well, English is not my native language, so I'm just uh, winging it. It sounded oh, like I... you picked it up from the early way as Essex. <laughs> <laughs> is that where you get your Britishness from? Um, yes, that's exactly the reason why. Uh, it is an S, as ChatGPT. Yeah. All right. So, David, what I'm hearing is that personalization, it's a, it's a suitcase word. It, uh, it has a lot of meanings for a lot of people. However, it, uh, it points to some somewhere, right? I mean, it, it, it gets companies. It makes companies make progress. It helps them make, make progress. And uh, what I'm also hearing is uh, the, the fact that an individual, uh, a consumer has a journey while the company has another journey. And in order for them to, to, to meet, you know, to, to, uh, to make progress together, what I'm hearing is that the company should make conscious efforts to personalize in the sense of adapting to what the, their consumer, their customer is trying to achieve, to the progress that they are trying to make with the help of their services or, or, or products. Am I hearing this correctly? Yeah, it's not too far off. Who you designed for, yourselves mm -hmm. or the customer? All right. So, what's uh, what's in your book? What, what what's the I don't know. I, I have a friend, by the way, which he, uh, is is playing with uh, with the AI, and he plugged the Bible through GPT four, and now you can speak with the Bible. You know, you can ask something like, "I don't want to go to work today," <laughs> and and, uh, and and the Bible chat get, gets gets to him with some <laughs> some code like. Uh, Man's uh, purpose is to create uh, uh, 
value and whatever. So is it giving you, giving you advice based on what the yeah, Bible? Exactly. Would say? And, and yeah. if we are to ask you, because you're the GPT four and the bridge towards your book, and if we are to ask, what's your book all about? What are the main insights? What, what's the purpose of that book? And what are some insights that we can we could get from your book? What would you ask? Uh, well, I I feel I would. I, I would summarize it as such that I feel as though we've lost the person in personalization. So that's what the book is called, person in personalization. I feel as though that person has been lost and we've replaced it with greed, with money, with commercialism, with growth, with revenue, uh, with this concept of more equals more, with let's put more in the top of the hopper and more will fall, fall out, with revenue pressure. Uh, we've replaced it with the concept of ego and greed, with data, with AI, with technology. Uh, I feel like we're forgetting that there's a human on the other side of this this screen who should be spoken to appropriately. Shouldn't be spoken to in a case of, would you like to buy this thing right now and you'll get 10% off? I'm just browsing, for goodness sake. No, 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 but 50 people have already looked at this thing. I know, but I'm just I'm just browsing. Yeah, yeah, but if you sign up now, then you'll get a free newsletter that you won't be able to unsubscribe. You know, it feels so incredibly inappropriate and so far removed from a human-to-human -human interaction in store. Um, and I feel as though that's been lost. And that that it makes me kind of emotional, if I'm honest, perhaps a, a little bit um, a little bit far-fetched. I relate it to my time, you know, my relationship with Disney and my other love, which is Manchester United. I'm sorry. Uh, how they've removed, you know, the person element from what is essentially an experience in both both examples, a uh, fan experience and a guest experience. So if you attach ChatGPT for anything, or five as it will soon become, uh, about my book, I, I would say, um, why have we lost the person in personalization? So I think people really resonate with that. I think they understand that we are slowly losing that personal element has been replaced with screens, you know, with giant vision pros or whatever it might be, with phones in front of our screens or faces. Um, so I, I am advocating the need for us to have some level of intimacy between brand and person, which is what advertising is all about. It's what selling is all about, for goodness sake. So why have we lost that? Yeah. Do you foresee uh, a future which brands are hyper-personalizing the experience of their customers, no matter the touch point or where you are on this, uh, uh, on this spectrum? Yeah, I, I, I do see a possibility of it, but I don't feel it's likely. Um, the possibility comes from the fact, you know, that uh, one of the hardest things to do with impersonalization is just the concept of effort. You know, uh, data is definitely a restriction. It's why Gartner state that 80% of all marketers will abandon personalization in the next two years. They cite data restriction, collection, management, accessibility as being the main proponent behind that stat. Okay. Mm -hmm. I actually disagree. I think it's all to do with effort. I think as humans, marketers would much rather take the blue pill and lose weight than go to the gym for five days a week. Uh, it's all about the concept of effort. And AI will reduce that effort. And therefore, I think it's a good thing. I also see a world where with Web 3.0 and data governance being so important, who controls whose data? At the moment, websites in a 2.0 world, websites request data from you, the individual. Um, 
and you just uh, blindly accept yes to whatever the arbitrary cookie message is that comes up. And in a in a 3.0 world, you'll own your data profile and you'll pass over and willingly give certain pieces of information, not all of it, to that uh, that is relevant to the company that you want to give that to. And I feel as though putting the control back in the customer's shoes is a very, very good thing uh, for two reasons. Number one, ethically, it's better. Number two, it will force companies to be more creative about how they approach personalization because it will get harder, right? Yeah. It's so, one of the wild, wild west days of the cookie or tracking parameters. I think so that's a good what, what I'm hearing, David, is that you foresee a future where the individuals are not disclosing too much data about them, forcing the companies to get very creative so that they stay relevant and persuade or convince their the the the, the individuals to make the uh, behavior changes that they are willing to, right? Yeah, well, personalization is not going away. Let's just put, put a line in that sand. There's too much money in it. Uh, there's too much proof that... Uh, brand relationships and intimacy that exists between brand and individual is always a good thing. There's far too many academic studies on that. And also, personalization is the root of all advertising. It has been empirically proven that targeted advertising works inherently better than mass advertising. I think we can all agree with that. Um, there was a chap that I spoke to called Ian Daniels, who's the founder of the CX Collective, and he also agreed by basically saying, personalization is not going away because there's too much money in it. The concept that Netflix are doing an advertising model, Amazon are doing an advertising model. They're the two biggest proponents of personalization because they hold so much data, uh, psychographic, demographic, that it will it will just work for them. You know, it'd be a great model. So I, yeah. I completely agree. So I do not think that personalization is going away anytime soon. Um, yeah, I, I, I just I, I see it as as, as evolving. Mm -hmm. I feel as though brands need to understand that it is about the individual and how to get and source preferences and interests from that individual will just become harder to do. The question becomes, how do you do that? And that's where that creativity comes from. I think there are solutions around that, by the way. Um, yeah. I think if they're more intimate with the individual, if they provide some kind of value exchange or a, a, a reciprocity uh, that is of value to the individual, that is more than just an arbitrary discount or a sign up for a newsletter, something slightly more creative that a community, a brand, an identity, a, a yeah. familiarity, acknowledgement, I think that will work inherently better going forward. Yeah. David, I, I, I totally agree. And I will, uh, I will tell you the story of how I've... Uh... I've dropped the ball when we've launched our uh, a huge feature in our in our, in our oh, yeah. solution. So basically, it was 2015, and we've made this huge integration to get third-party data regarding the weather conditions, if it's raining, if it's snowing, if it's whatever. Yeah, and we thought, yeah, that's going to skyrocket us. All the marketers will do it automatically, and they will come up with these crazy ideas, and they will leverage this. Well, guess what? Those were the one of the, we have like 45 data points that we are using to personalize or to adapt the web really experience. Serious? Yeah. And those were the lowest, uh, had the lowest uh, option. 
because most of the uh, initially for yeah those marketers are stupid they don't know what to do and uh, but we know and we will help them to to get the truth while uh, after that we realize that these are not kind of usable i mean not all the products are uh, are being used according to the weather conditions so there are few products i mean i don't know ice cream uh, winter sports stuff like that and some tourism over uh, uh, here and there. I mean, it's uh, if it's raining and you're in Manchester, which are high chances, by the way, and you are selling uh, packages to Maldives or whatever, then you yeah. could kind of be a bit uh, more uh, persuasive if you have this uh, data. But other than that, it wasn't working. What we also understood, I mean, after all these years, is that first-party data is uh, is a huge thing. So if you if you if you come up with a way to have enough people disclosing what they are struggling with or what they are after, what's the purpose of their visit or whatever, and if you crunch that data, if you understand the patterns of the reasoning behind the certain behavior, then you could, you could influence that behavior way better than, than just doing this type of uh, fingerprinting and uh, zero third-party data. So I think the, the cookies going away is not such a bad thing. However, there are a few marketers, and I want to touch this subject, by the way, with you. There are a few marketers that get what they are actually selling. You know, it was that famous Peter Drucker that, that half of the companies don't know what they actually sell. Yeah. So let's let's talk a bit about the, the human, the, the expert part of it. So where is the the, the creativity needed in this process of uh, being relevant and uh, leveraging personalization for brands? Well, sometimes it's forced. So I think regulation is forcing people away from the current status quo, which is great. I think technology forces people away from the current status quo as well. Um, like I like your weather example because your weather example tells me <laughs> Forgive me. It's just stupid, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's not personalization at all. It's some arbitrary attribute that feels quite sexy um, or feels quite creative, but really has little to no value. Um, it's It has no personal data about it. So therefore, I don't consider it personalization because it is not personal in any way, shape or form. It's about the bloody weather, for goodness sake. You know, how does that dictate a buying pattern? Uh, for an individual uh, or how can that be persuasive for an individual it probably needs to be associated with a message and then the context of that individual with that message as well so I feel the creativity comes being honest from two 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 areas number one is looking at other industries that do it well by the way there are many we could talk about that and number two going back to basics we often get um, blindsided we have blinkers on by sexy things, be that weather components or AI, and we lose track of what it means to actually sell human to human, do you not think? When you're trying to sell your product to some of your prospects, you look at things like tone of voice, body language, uh, yep. not just what they say, but how they say, there's that famous, you know, 735, um, what is it, seven? Uh, 55, 38 rule where everything, every, the meaning of what somebody says, only 7% is only conveyed through voice, 55% body language. Body and language. 
33%, uh, I think that makes sense, uh, 38% is tone of voice. Well, th those components convey meaning and context. And I think that's what we miss when we look at retailers or when we look at brands that try to look at the intent of the user, the meaning of why that person is there. I think that's why product quizzes are so good, by the way, because they explicitly try and get the context from the individual and serve up something to that individual. The problem yeah. we find ourselves is that product quizzes are only based around finding a product, not, not like um, selling a product. Uh, let me give you an example. Have you ever seen a product quiz that says, how are you feeling today? Or how would it make you feel? How would this kettle change your life? I don't know, something more emotional or ethereal rather than just, do you like black kettles or blue kettles? Um, yeah. So I, I think context, meaning, intent, these things are all really important. They're missing from the selling process, which feels like 101 to me. That's right. Uh, I want to ask you something related to the the impact of personalization and and I know that you 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 launched a, a new company nowadays and you're you're after different things how do you measure the impact how can you influence the impact for the for the decision makers which are after profit because as you've said earlier we've lost the person in personalization and and that was due to some KPIs and targets and goals which were to achieve by the decision makers right yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about this because it, it kind of uh, flows through from everything we spoke about uh, beforehand. So we speak about creativity. Uh, we spoke about taking ideas from other companies or other, other industries. Uh, we speak about like the notion of quality and quantity, intent, meaning, context. So uh, this all came from uh, reading a few books. I, I'm a big football fan, like I've said, and in COVID, football went away. Uh, you know, you can't play outdoors and what have you. And I really, really missed it. I started reading books about football statistics. And I don't know if you know much about football statistics or, or data. Um, there's a concept. I know that it's a, it's a thing at the end of any, <laughs> any football match with, which shows things like possessions, uh, okay, yeah. sh shoots on target and st stuff like that. So think about the concept of what a goal is. A goal is the goal within a football match is an aggregated metric that's retrospective, it's binary, did someone score or not? And it's very rare, you know, so three or less in a Premier League game. So how can you personalise your approach to the opponent, if you're the coach, when your end output is something that's rare, that's aggregated, that's retrospective, and predominantly based on look? Well, there was a company called Optosports, and they came along and said, you know what, we can... We can do better than this. We can use machine learning to predict whether a goal will occur or not based on a pattern of play, the angle of a shot, the distance of a shot. It doesn't matter whether Cristiano Ronaldo has taken the shot or, I don't know, Danny Ings, very good footballer, not to, not to be disingenuous. Where it doesn't matter who's taken the shot. All that matters is the patterns of play that were quite systematic before a shot occurred. Now, doesn't this sound vaguely familiar to the way we shop in e-commerce, which is a bunch of systematic fashion uh, attributes strung together that are both rational and irrational, that are systematic, that are based on a series of tasks, where in theory, 
you can weight each task and predict the next task. So that's what we did. We took the concepts of expected goals, which they stole from the concepts of Sabre metrics. If you've ever watched the film Moneyball um, with Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt or read the book by Michael Lewis. Um, and we took that concept and we've applied it to e-commerce websites. So we can accurately track the intent of an audience and also predict their next action, which doesn't necessarily have to be a purchase. Because by the way, our research suggests that 86% of all your audience, dependent on the site, has a low level of intent to purchase within that session. I mean, it's, it's a proponent as to why you only have a 2% conversion rate on average, for goodness sake. So um, I don't know if it accurately answers your question, but I, I think by understanding the intent of your audience, you're automatically giving context and meaning to why they're there. And then you could be more appropriate to them. Then you don't have to give I don't know, 10% discount codes off to people who are going to buy anyways, or people have just landed onto your store, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I completely forgot what your first question was. <laughs> I just got into this. this the mess. first question at the beginning or the last one? Who knows? Just anything. I'm just talking now. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think meaning... What, what I was asking you is how do you measure that? I mean, if you are to, to, to look at the success of a personalization endeavor... Uh, what I'm hearing is that you can progressively look at the patterns which lead or, or which gives you clue that, clues that this conversion is going to happen or that that revenue is going to show up. And that basically can be leveraged by, by marketers, by market, marketeers. And uh, the question is, how do you look at the uh, success of a personalization uh, program? And when can you, let's say... Oh, yeah. A company wants to adopt that and says, okay, David, I've got it. I want to be, I want to put back the person into personalization. I want to well, make money and help our customers make progress. Well, I think it's basically not just looking at quantity, but looking at quality as well. So at the moment, re the majority of retailers just look at quantity. They look at results, the end output, the goal in a football match. Mm -hmm. And they often emit as a result of that quality the composition of traffic. You know, is the majority of our traffic, do they have a high level of intent? Where are they in their browsing stage? What's their mindset? I.e. an expected goal. You know, uh, based, uh, is like, uh, uh, analyzes the performance of a football match. Um, we often talk about it in a state of performance, not results. Um, or really it should be performance with results. Um, so when yep. you're talking about measuring intent or measuring the results of a personalization campaign, I would look at basically not just the quantity, the result, but also the quality, the performance. All right. So when you say quality of the results, how do you measure that? How are you aware about the fact that the customers are happy? Do you... Do you survey them? Do you get the pulse of them? Do you do do you do like uh, you look at or or you look at other other kind of metrics? So let's say I'm an online retailer. I've made this uh, let's say uh, efforts to personalize yeah. my website in a manner that is not uh, uh, something like you're new here. Here's ten percent from us, just like this. Yeah. So how 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 is the company looking at the 
impact the qualitative uh, the quality of the uh, pers their personalization efforts well they do that through or they should do that through various predictive metrics because mm -hmm. the problem with retrospective metrics is that the the things already happened um, yep. when you often exactly when you often personalize uh, the metrics that you use are those quantitative results based metrics so conversion rate revenue and therein lies the problem is that you're not being personal at all you are really designing for the business and i know i know what people will say is well we're doing conversion rate optimization we're designing for the user to help them convert uh, but really i i would actually question whether you are persuading them or manipulating them whether you are making things easier for them or making things easier for you what is the purpose, I think, is probably the biggest question I have. What is the purpose of your personalization campaign? Now, it has to be balanced. I'm not silly enough to just think that you only need metrics for the user and not for the business. I appreciate that. But my question is more about the imbalance of those two things. Um, yep. In terms of measuring, I go back to you need to measure the quality as much as the quantity. You need to ask questions like, am I being appropriate? to this user at this point in time. Let me give you an example. Uh, let me give you an example of social proof. Uh, I haven't proven this theory yet, but I'm going to. Um, and that is the theory that social proof is vastly inappropriate for the majority of your customers. And the net positive that you get from your social proof campaigns, I, you know, 50 people looking at this or five people bought this, they only work on the few rather than the majority. So think about all those people that are looking at a product at that point in time that have enough confidence in that product that are far enough down their journey that they are going to be persuaded by that message. How many do you think that is? I think it's not very many at all. I think it's a few. Yeah. Now we know that these messages work. You know, we all need to read like Caldini's book to identify that Social proof is a thing. Exclusivity, scarcity, these things work. They don't work for everyone. And I actually think they're inappropriate for the vast majority. I feel as though they could even incite anxiety in the vast majority and only gently persuade the few. So therefore, my, my recommendation would be to identify those types of audience where social proof does gently persuade them target those an audience and be more appropriate to the vast majority of your audience that is knowing near ready to buy just yet. That is not through social proof. There's a very famous quote uh, that's in my book that I really like to cite quite a lot by an ex-FBI director called Robin Dreek. And he said that the difference between personalization, sorry, the difference between persuasion, manipulation is intent i.e. understand the context of your audience and be more appropriate to them. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing, David, is that you could progressively build uh, profiles of uh, behavior patterns, right? I mean, you, you could build profiles based on the behavior patterns of the visitors on a website. And based on those uh, clues and events, you could be relevant by using the right persuasion or no persuasion method because basically it's not about not everything works for everyone which means scarcity might work for some of them scarcity might not work for the other 
part, right? Yeah, and what, I what I'm doing is to, to craft this type of uh, relevant uh, persuasion methods according to the, the, the micro events, right? It does. It sounds obvious, right? I'm not talking about some Cambridge Analytica shite where you need to bucket people into an ocean profile and persuade them based on that ocean profile. I'm just talking about human behavior. I'm just talking about being like absolutely appropriate. I yep. know you, and it's very kind of you to invite me on CVO Live. It would be inappropriate for me to charge you or something like that because I already know you. Um, that's a really shitty example. Uh, I'm sorry for swearing twice, by the way, in the last 30 seconds. <laughs> but I'm trying, I'm, being, I'm trying to put an example of just appropriateness into the context of our discussion. Um, yep. It feels obvious, does it not? Yeah, it's... Uh... It's clear now. Now the question is, where do you think the adoption is going to be? Because uh, we we are coming from a from a let's say we are playing into a market where online retailers were being guided by growth initially. Now they are guided by profits and uh, profitability. Getting from growth, you know, the pendulum is is going in the opposite direction right now. But where the adoption is going to be from, from your perspective? Because it's clear that they can also make money, more money, right? They can be more performant and they can also be more relevant, which leads to having more happy customers. Well, I think it's about focus. So there's, there's a couple of things that when we talk about adoption, number one is tech have been doing this for years. B2B have been doing this for years. The, the concepts of intent data is not new whatsoever. You mm -hmm. know, B2B uses intent data day in, day out. That's been the case for about seven or eight years. Uh, Google first introduced the concept of intent in 2015 with RankBrain, where they tried to get the context of the words that you were typing in, not just the letters and the words that you were typing in. Uh, Spotify use it, Netflix use it, Facebook use it, Amazon use it. Good. This is not new. This is just about adoption. Uh, the, the second thing, therefore, is um, thinking about intent as a means to prioritize effectively. So we were taught as retailers that more is more. You know, Google, Facebook, any form of traffic acquisition source that like the more you put in the top of the hopper, the more that comes out of the hopper. But have you ever stopped to consider the quality of what you're putting in the hopper? Because what you can do with the concept of intent is understand whether they have a specific level of intent, a low intent, in which case your, your approach should be to nurture them. If they have a high intent, your approach should be to leave them alone because they're going to buy anyways, for example. Uh, there's probably like a nice percentage between medium and high intent that are persuadable, that the social proofs of the work would work for. Target yeah. those. Like we're talking about priorities. Focus on those people first, like simultaneously, or you can nurture those at the, the, the top of the hopper or the bottom of the funnel whichever way you want to look at it. Um, so for yeah. me, this is, this is about doing more with less and going against the grain of more is more. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty simple stuff. It's very basic selling principles. Um, yeah. It's just been, and, and it's stolen from other, other uh, formats, right? It's stolen from the B2Bs of the world. It's stolen from tech and retail always follows tech. Um, it's just the concept of being more appropriate, which I think is a very human principle. But if you want to make more money, I think this is a great way to do it because you're prioritizing effectively. So what I'm, uh, 
what I'm noticing here, David, is that we we could we could contemplate a future where companies will be in a position to leverage not only the real-time intent data, but also the uh, historical data, like the past behavioral data. And if you know that you have, I don't know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers with a history between you and them, you know that you had uh, customers that bought from that category, that brand, that returned that product, that were uh, so unhappy that they opened up two tickets in the last uh, two months around uh, your the, their past deliveries, that bought these products and not other ones. And then they are on re in real time on the website and they are behaving like they need assistance rather than buying because you have different purposes on your website. It's not on, only about uh, uh, pursuing uh, visitors because you you and and different purposes and you are the only tellers that wake up to the reality i mean you're always pointing everyone towards buying if you want to get assist on a purchase that you've already done you need to scroll down and uh, and find it you know to play hide and seek with the footer so what i'm hearing is that in the future all of these data all of those point data points will be leveraged, can be and will be leveraged so that the individuals, the, the consumers will be uh, served way better so that their online experience will not match the offline experience, but will get at a, at a decent level without being bombarded with uh, irrelevant uh, discount codes that nobody is using because they are there not to buy, right? That's what yeah. I'm hearing from you. Sounds like a great world to live in, one where we don't have generic templated shite, where we move stuff around on a page because we think that that improves conversion rate for absolutely everybody. No, yeah. it's about a world where we're more appropriate with our customers um, and that enables a more ethical, more human selling process. But as a business, it allows us to prioritize as well. It allows yeah. us to be serve more relevant messages to those users and not assuming that everyone is on your website to buy. Yeah. So David, what I have to, to, to add on this, uh, in this scenario is that this is a great initiative to improve the value that the customers are getting from, from the company, right? So that's, that's going to end up for having more valuable customers because it's this principle, right? It's reciprocity. You always get what you give. So if you give yeah. more value to your customers, you'll, you'll be able to extract more value from your customers. So it's uh, it's also part of this uh, CVO methodology where you come up with initiatives to become relevant so, so that you have happy customers that will want to come back. It's not about you bombarding them with emails after that. What I, what I also see in, in this approach where you, you, you come up with all these data points is that you need to do it cross-channel. So I don't, I don't think that the website is the only place to tweak, you know, the only, the only channel. I think it has to be cross-channel uh, personalization, right? So, so because otherwise you have this uh, Frankenstein approach where you, you, you focus on some of the uh, customers on one channel and on the other channel, you, you treat them like they are brand new and they deserve a new discount. But the signals that you give, the implicit signals, you can, you can identify those and respond appropriately. Um, so I, I feel as though the, the, um, the mixture between real-time behavior, 
signals plus past data information makes for like a beautiful personalization approach. Um, that, that's my theory anyways. Yeah. Perfect. So David, as we are uh, getting close to the end of this episode, let me know what questions haven't I been inspired enough to ask you? Uh, I don't know. This was just a conversation, right? Um, what questions haven't you asked? Well, you haven't asked about AI, which is good. Um, <laughs> that's the one question I get asked all the time. You haven't asked, interestingly, what is my definition of personalization? I think that, that occurs yeah. quite Let's Let's hear that. Um, oh, let me ask you first, right? Okay. David, what is your definition of personalization, if you please? Um, okay. I, I don't really have a definition because ironically, I think that by having a generic definition, uh, it is not very personalized in its approach. I think everyone has a different mm -hmm. definition. I also think that personalization is slightly more conceptual. It's like asking what is creativity or what is entrepreneurship. That's why everyone has a different slant or angle to it but the sentiment is always the same so my values and beliefs as to what personalization is are the following i believe that personalization is all about a relationship i think it's a communication principle not a discipline and i feel as though it's designed to um it's an action of a verb so it is designed to be personal and therefore it's the action of being personal. So I would leave your audience with asking them, how can you be more personal in your communication principle in order to build a better relationship with your customers? Beautiful, loved it. So David, where can people get a hold of you? So where, where are you mostly active on which social uh, media? Probably LinkedIn. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say, so there's only one David Mannheim. Uh, that's, I think that's true. It's a very unique name. Uh, um, you can register for my book on my, my LinkedIn profile. Um, it should be out in two weeks, to be fair. So this is a live event, right? But uh, uh, yeah, end of July, it'll be available for pre-order. I hope it's taken ages. Super. Can't, can't wait to... to... To read it so david thanks a lot for being part of the cvo live and uh, hopefully we'll uh, see you again in a couple of months to tell us how well received was uh, was your book and to tell us how was after becoming a published uh, author so okay. that being said all the best from bucharest everyone and we'll see each other in the next episode